have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For the word of God is, uh, is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus on a study of God's word and to uh, uh, concentrate, to think objectively, to put aside the things that are going on in our everyday lives, the things about tomorrow, the pressures and adversities that we face in order to focus on what the Lord has to teach us tonight. So we'll take a few moments to get ready and open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we had this opportunity to study your word, that it is your word that you have given to us in its entirety. It is without error and infallible, and your word is the means by which you are maturing us. It is the means by which we grow spiritually, and it is the way that we come to understand the nature of reality, and thereby conforming our thinking to it, we can think correctly and objectively. Father, now as we study your word and continue our study of your plan for history, we pray that you would help us to understand what a fantastic privilege we have as church-age believers and all of the tremendous assets that we have as believers for our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we have been studying about dispensations, God's plan for history, and all of the things that that God has provided for us. And in the process and progress of our study, we have come to the church age. And uh, in the last couple of weeks, we have talked about the uh, characteristics of the church age. We have looked at passages like Acts 2 that describe when the church age began and how the church age started. And in our now 19th hour in uh, going over dispensations and covenants, we are going to come to a look at the distinctives of the church age. So there are about six different distinctives. Each of these has many subpoints, so don't get too confused and distracted in your notes. I have uh, six different distinctives for the church age, and this is important to understand. We began with some of these the last time, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over what we have already covered, but I want to review them and expand on a few that we already looked at. First of all, the church age began on the day of Pentecost in approximately 33 A.D. It did not begin in the Old Testament. It did not begin with Adam, Noah, Abraham, or Moses. There's no mention of the church in the Old Testament. The church began when the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That sets up the distinctive. It is crucial to understand these distinctives and understand the biblical basis for these distinctives if we're going to understand where we go next, which will be on the nature of the rapture and the timing of the rapture. So many of the factors that relate to understanding the correct uh, timing of the rapture uh, relate to understanding some of these aspects of the church because all of these are ultimately help us realize that God has a different plan and program for the church than he does for Israel. And to consistently maintain that distinction between Israel and the church is crucial to rightly understanding the word of God. So the first distinctive is that the church began 
on the day of Pentecost, 33 A.D. Second distinctive, the end of the church age then is the rapture. So this marks the beginning and the end. The beginning on the day of Pentecost and the end is what is called the rapture or the exit resurrection of the church. The body of Christ is removed physically, corporately, instantaneously from planet earth by a sovereign act of God when the body of Christ is complete. The instant that last believer puts his faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant the rapture will occur. Passages on that, and we will come back to many, to look at all of these again when we come to our study of the rapture next week. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 John 3, 1 and 2, Philippians 3, 21, and John 14, 1 to 3. There are numerous other passages. We've covered those the last time. One reason, when I give passages, now that we are using this PowerPoint presentation, I like to be able to put them up on the, on the overhead so everybody can see what the Scripture says. But just to remind you of how important it is for you to be reading your Bible on a daily basis. Some, I was talking with someone recently, and they mentioned the fact that there are, uh, sometimes believers get the idea that because the, the translations that we have are not always that accurate, that, that it's, we can't really understand the word unless a pastor teacher is explaining it to us, that um, we should never read our Bibles because, goodness, we might get confused. Well, if that's a reason for not reading your Bible, then that would be a reason for not doing just about anything in life. Because we can start doing anything. You buy something at the store and come home and have to put it together and get out the instructions. You're going to get confused. So that should never be a reason for not reading the Word. That's just an excuse for spiritually lazy people who become spiritually incompetent people because if you're not reading the Word, then you become biblically illiterate. And if you're biblically illiterate and you don't know who uh, people are in the Bible, don't know who Abraham is, don't know who uh, Sarah is, don't know Jacob, don't know uh, Shir Jashub in the, uh, who was uh, later on in Isaiah, you don't know... Uh, these people, then, when I make allusions to them from the pulpit, you're totally unaware of the point. You don't know what's going on, and you have no clue. Come on in, kids. Just sit down and be real quiet and still during the hour. And if you don't know these things, then you're un- you can't really follow the points that are being made. And one of the things that I see today is that in doctrinal churches... People have become biblically illiterate. They're as bad as some other older traditional churches that uh, they won't open their Bible unless some priest or pope tells them exactly what it means, so they never read the Bible. So we don't want to slip in, into some kind of Protestant papacy concept that you can't read or understand the Bible unless the pastor teacher explains it to you. There are many things that, that people can understand. I, I use the analogy of gold mining. You don't have to be a mining engineer. You don't have to have a degree in, in mining you know, or, or geology to be able to pick up a pan and go down to a mountain stream and pan for gold dust. You're not going to get rich panning for gold dust, but you're going to find a few gems and you're going to pull out a few nuggets and uh, make a few bucks, and it's going to be valuable. But if you're going to do anything of substance, you're going to, once you find where that gold dust came from, you need to hire a mining engineer. And that mining engineer or geology expert is the one who is able to sink down the deep shafts and pull out the, and hit the mother load and pull out the deep chunks of ore that produce wealth. Well, that's the difference between what the everyday believer can do as a function of his priesthood is to read the Bible. You're reminded of the promises of God. You're reminded of the faithfulness of God. You're reminded of who God is and that God is more powerful than our circumstances or problems or adversities. And there are many things that we are reminded of in the process <coughs> of simply reading our Bible on a day-to-day on a day-to-day basis. And, um, and then you have a pastor teacher who has the uh, degree, hopefully, and understands the original languages and the ability to sink down those, those deep shafts into the Word of God and pull up the 
the mother load and the deep chunks of spiritual uh, ore so that you can uh, use that to become spiritually wealthy. So there's a place for both. If you read things in the Bible and you get confused, then um, you can always ask questions. Somebody was asking me not long ago if uh, it was okay to ask questions. Now, if I'm following a train of thought up here, sometimes it's disruptive to raise your hand and ask a question. But uh, we did this at one time, and I think we just forgot, and I didn't mention it. Maybe um, if Al was still in here, I'd remind Al to put it in the bulletin. Is uh, just write your question down on a three-by-five card or back of the bulletin or a piece of paper, and then give it to me, and then the next week I can uh, I can address it. But um, uh, and it doesn't have to necessarily be on something I'm uh, I'm teaching. If you happen to read something and get really confused, and you can always ask me about it. So don't be afraid to do that. But we need to be reading our Bibles to be aware of what is going on in the Scriptures and what God is doing so that we can have a frame of reference, at least a uh, modicum of biblical knowledge to bring to, to Bible class so we can understand what the pastor is teaching. Okay, distinctives of the church age. The church began on the day of Pentecost, number one, end of the church age is the rapture, the exit resurrection of the church. And, of course, one of the reasons I said what I just said is because when I give you a list of passages, like 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, 1 John 3, 1 and 2, Philippians 3, 21, John 14, 1 through 3, I don't want you to just simply write that in your notebook, but that is so that you, in your own personal Bible study, can go back and review your notes and look those verses up and, and examine them. Uh, remember when Paul went to Berea, which was a town in, in uh, Greece, and after he uh, taught the word and explained the gospel, he praised them because they just didn't take him at his word for it, but they went back and they searched the scriptures daily to make sure that what he taught was what the scripture said. And that was the Apostle Paul. Now, we're not talking about some pastor who just went to seminary. We're talking about the most knowledgeable a believer in the church age, given more information about the church age and about doctrine than any other believer in history. And yet he praised the Bereans because they uh, just didn't accept it at his word, but they went home and studied the word for themselves. So there is an important place for that. And that's why I give those supporting passages. Okay, the third point. We're studying the church age. Church age begins at the cross and ends with the rapture. Subsequent to the rapture, we don't know how long a gap there will be. We'll have the tribulation, then the second coming, and millennium. So this is the section of dispensations that we're studying, the post-cross dispensations. Third point, the church is said to be a mystery a mystery. There are a number of passages for this. The Greek word for mystery has to do with unrevealed truth. It comes from the Greek word mysterion, M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And it means a doctrine that has not been previously revealed but something that has now been revealed. So the point here that we have to remember is if the church is a mystery in the New Testament, it's a simple but powerful point, the church is a mystery in the New Testament, then that means that it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. If it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, then whatever it is they were doing in the Old Testament cannot be called the church. Now, all the replacement theologies, Roman Catholicism, uh, Calvinism under covenant theology, it's interesting, almost every uh, theologian who's involved in shaping and developing dispensationalism was a uh, Calvinist or Presbyterian. Chafer was a Congregationalist and a Presbyterian. Schofield was a um, Presbyterian or Congregationalist and many, many others. Uh, James Hall Brooks was a Presbyterian. So that's the background they came from. But nevertheless, they rejected covenant theology 
because it did not make a distinction between Israel and the church. And one of those important things to note is that if the church is a mystery, then whatever is going on in the Old Testament cannot be uh, called the church. Romans 16.25 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Notice there's our definition of mystery in the text. It is doctrine that has not been revealed in the past but is now revealed. Verse 26, but now is manifested. That word means to reveal. But now is manifested, now is revealed, and by the scriptures of the prophets. Now I want to take notice here. What Paul is saying here, to him who is able, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to establish you according to what? The gospel and the preaching, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, those are linked together, according to two things, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifest. See, they broke that verse between verse 25 and 26 at a bad place. That first clause in verse 26 modifies the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. So the break really should have come after that. It reads, which has been the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. So that's the first thing that, that um, Paul is saying about his preaching. It is according to a standard. Kata plus the accusative means according to a standard. And the standard here is the revelation of this new doctrine that was secret, that was hidden, that was not revealed in the Old Testament. But now it is revealed. And secondly, by the scriptures of the prophets. So those are the two standards according to the new revelation given, which is New Testament doctrine, and according to the scriptures of the prophets. And here it's Old Testament prophets. The scriptures of the prophets here refers to Old Testament. We're going to see a passage in Ephesians 2.20, which talks about the church having as its foundation the apostles and prophets, and their prophets it does not refer to Old Testament prophets, but to New Testament uh, believers who had the gift of prophecy at the foundation of the church who were also involved in uh, giving new revelation related to mystery doctrine. So the preaching of Jesus Christ is according to the revelation of the mystery doctrine related to the church age and uh, the scriptures of Old Testament prophets. According to the commandment, it go, the verse goes on to read, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. So we need to examine a little more deeply the mystery character of the church age. Well, a central passage is in Ephesians. Ephesians develops many of the concepts related to the mystery doctrine of the church age, especially in Ephesians chapter 3. So you might want to turn there. The crucial verses I will show up on the uh, overhead, but... You need to follow along and annotate your Bible where you can so that when you go back and try to find this later, you will be able to do so. Highlight words like mystery as you read along so that you can come back and your eye will, will catch those later. One thing I do sometimes when I'm reading is that if I'm reading down a column and I see important doctrines or references that I want to remember, I will pick out a key word and just put that in the top margin. I might have four or five different words just in the top margin of my Bible. And then when I'm thumbing back through Isaiah or Jeremiah looking for something, I'll look for those key words, and that helps me find things rapidly. Ephesians 3, 3 through 5 develops the doctrine, uh, the mystery doctrine of the church. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. There the Apostle Paul makes it clear that this is not Old Testament doctrine. It was not in the Old Testament. There's no indication in the Old Testament that there would be a church age. As far as the Old Testament prophets were concerned, all of God's promises, all of God's plans were related to the nation Israel. There's no mention of the church. In fact, it comes as a surprise to the apostles when Jesus says that he's going to go to heaven, and we studied that in John 14, 1 through 3, he said, if I go to my father's house, I'll return again and take you 
uh, that where I am you may be also. Where I am is in heaven. They're still looking for a kingdom on earth, and Jesus is telling them, no, I'm taking you to heaven, not to the earth. I have a different plan. Israel's plan is on the earth. Uh, the church's destiny is heaven. So there is new revelation given related to the church age that was not revealed in the Old Testament. Verse 4, And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And that relates to the fact that in the life of Christ, his spiritual life was based on a different dynamic than that that was present in the Old Testament. Now, that's something that is not emphasized very much, but there is something here, a previously unrevealed doctrine related to Christ. And that has to do with the fact that in his spiritual life, he lived it on the basis of the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit, a dynamic that was not available to Old Testament believers. But that's one of the fantastic things that we have as believers is that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He's made our body a temple for the residence of of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And He fills us with doctrine. He teaches us the Word. He stores it in our soul and He recalls it to our memory for application. That's never, ever happened before in human history. This makes every one of us something special, something unique, something far beyond anything that was ever imagined by an Old Testament believer and to whom much is given, much is also expected. So he refers to this new doctrine that he has been, that's been revealed to him, the mystery doctrine, and he tells the Ephesian believers that when you read this, you read the epistle to the Ephesians, they should be able to understand the insight that he has into the mystery of Christ. He is going to unpack new application from Christ that would not have been seen without a frame of reference related to church age doctrine. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Once again, there we have the definition of mystery doctrine. It is truth that is not revealed in previous generations, but is now revealed And then he says, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles. That refers to the eleven who were with Christ during the time of his public ministry and incarnation, plus the apostle Paul who was one born out of time. And then he says, his holy apostles and prophets by means of the Spirit. This is referring, this mention of prophets here is not referring to Old Testament prophets. Now, how do we know that? Well, if we open our eyes and just look at the context, it's clear it can't be Old Testament prophets because he just got through saying that this doctrine was not made known previously. So if it wasn't made known previously, those to whom doctrine was made known previously were prophets. If it wasn't made known to the Old Testament prophets, then this can't refer to Old Testament prophets and must refer to New Testament prophets who are linked with the apostles as the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2. Verse 20. And we skip down to Ephesians 3, 9, and 10. Paul continues to talk about his ministry, and he says, And to bring to light, that bringing to light, the, that's the uh, Greek word phos, and indicates illumination. It means light. It means brightness. It can refer to daylight. It can refer to artificial light, like firelight. And it also has a metaphorical use of referring to illumination and revelation. And to bring to light what is the administration, and there's our Greek word, oikonomia, for dispensation, what is the dispensation of the mystery. This is one of the, one of the passages that clearly states that the church age is a distinct dispensation or administration in God's plan. To bring to light what is the administration or dispensation of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, in order that, notice the purpose clause in verse 10, in order that the manifold wisdom of God, manifold wisdom of God, this refers to the complex of knowledge that God has far beyond his omniscience, his wisdom of God in relating to 
all of human history. Now, notice, we have to look at the end to come back to see what this means. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now, now meaning the church age, be made known, revelation in the complete canon of Scripture through the revelation of mystery doctrine to the apostles, might be made known through the church. So the wisdom of God is being made known through the church. This isn't talking about simply the communication of doctrine in the text. It's talking about that the wisdom of God is going to be manifested through church-age believers, those who advance to spiritual adulthood, spiritual maturity, and glorify God, are going to demonstrate in their lives the wisdom of God. Paul says that the uh, church-age dispensation has as its purpose that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to whom? To unbelievers? No. To your family members? No. To whom? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Those are angels. And this ties in the fact that the church age plays a unique role in relation to the angelic conflict. That every single believer has a fantastic potential as a witness in the angelic conflict. And that we have to be reminded of what the angelic conflict is, that before time began, Satan, who was created as an angel, the highest of all the angels, he was the most beautiful, most intelligent, most powerful creature God ever made. He was of the order of angels called cherubs. And he had the highest position over all of the angels. I think that the the terminology used to describe him in Ezekiel 28 suggests that he had something related to a priestly role among the angels. We don't know exactly how that functioned or, or uh, what the mechanics of it were. The scriptures don't say. But he wore a breastplate, and that breastplate was covered with stones. Nine of the twelve stones mentioned of his breastplate were also on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. He's called the anointed, that is the Hebrew word Mashiach which is the same word from the word from which we get Messiah. It's called the Mashiach cherub, the anointed cherub who covers. That word for cover is also another word that is related to atonement. All of those are terms that immediately call to mind, if you're a Jew and you're reading that passage, all that terminology reminds you of the function of a priest. So in some way, he's, he's hired the, uh, the highest of all the angels. He's functioning as a priest, but he succumbs to arrogance and he wants to be like God. He wants to rule. He wants to govern creation, have his own little uh, area of the universe where he can dominate and run it according to the way he wants to instead of the way God wants to. So God convenes a trial, finds uh, Satan guilty in his uh, disobedience. He had seduced a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion against God. And so there is an angelic rebellion on hand. And God uh, squashes it and has a trial, condemns the angel to, angels to eternity in the lake of fire, creates the lake of fire, and Satan apparently appeals the verdict. You didn't give me a chance, God, to show what I can do. Give me a chance. Give me an opportunity. How can you really be fair? How can you really be just if you don't give me a chance and you still uh, sentence me to the lake of fire? How can you say that you're a God of integrity and how in the world can a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire? See, all of that is part of it. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us any of that. It's all inferred from a number of passages by putting things together, comparing Scripture with Scripture. It it illuminates the idea that there must be this kind of trial. One reason is that God is clearly trying to demonstrate certain things about himself, certain things about uh, obedience to his word, certain things about the priority of doctrine to the angels that cannot be learned any other way. So they're watching us. We are the test case. We are the exhibit in the courtroom trial through which God is demonstrating these principles to the angels. And so by in, in each dispensation, there's different dynamics. There's different abilities given believers. There's hardly any, any canon of Scripture. I think there was some kind of pre-canon Scripture in the um, uh, antediluvian period. I can't prove that. It's just 
uh, a guess that uh, based on who God is and what he is, that he's not going to leave a population that could have easily been as large as two or three billion people without some form of revelation. So whatever form of revelation they had, it was certainly less than what we have in the Scriptures. But they had a form of revelation. I think they still had the presence of God on the earth, suggested by Genesis 6-3, and yet they failed. There's a different dynamic after the flood. There's an uh, incomplete canon. They don't have the Holy Spirit. The spiritual life is based on the faith rest drill. Once again, there is failure. The creature cannot do it on his own. Then you come into the church age. In church age, we're given a vast array of spiritual assets. Uh, at least 40 things are given to us at the instant of salvation. We're given the indwelling filling of the Holy Spirit. We're given a completed canon of Scripture. We're, made, we're adopted into the royal family of God. We're made royal priests. We have all these assets and privileges, and yet millions and millions of believers are going to fail miserably in this spiritual life. Once again, the point is that, that man, apart from 100% obedience and dependence upon God, the creature, the creature cannot succeed. The creature is a failure apart from 100% dependence upon God, even when God doing everything. And then we're going to jump over the tribulation and come to the millennium. And the millennium is utopia on earth. Uh, there will still be people born who have sin natures, but the environment is perfect. There's perfect government, perfect legislation, perfect application of law. Uh, the, the, the curse is rolled back so that there is no longer animosity among the animals or between the animal kingdom and, and humanity. A, a lion will lie down with the lamb. A child will be able to put his hand into a cobra's den. There won't be any problems. There will be perfect environment. And yet, what's going to happen? Failure. Even at the end of the millennium, there will be a, a small cadre of unbelievers who... Uh, when Satan is released, he's going to be bound during the millennial kingdom, so you can't even say the devil made me do it. But yet, at the end of the millennial kingdom, when he is re released, they will follow him in a one final rebellious act against God. Once again, God is demonstrating that even with the most that God can provide in terms of environment and spiritual assets, the human race, the creature, fails apart from a 100% exclusive, radical dependence upon God, operating on principles of humility, which is authority orientation to God, and principles of being a servant, which is modeled ultimately by Jesus Christ. That's how all this fits into the angelic conflict. And so Paul says that all of this, the dispensation of the church age, is uniquely related to this revelation that the manifold wisdom of God might now, in the church age, be made known through the church to the angelic hierarchy, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is one of the most fantastic privileges that we have as believers, is our testimony in the angelic conflict. The next passage to look at related to the mystery doctrine is in Colossians 1.25 through 27. There Paul writes of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship. There's our word again. Uh, economia, meaning administration and minister, stewardship, according to the dispensation or administration from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God Verse 26, that is the mystery. That's what he is proclaiming. Paul is proclaiming the mystery doctrine, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. The point is that there is a body of doctrine related to the spiritual life of the church age, related to the existence of the church age, related to the organism known as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church, that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. That's what we have as believers in the church age. We have spiritual riches that nobody else in human history ever dreamed of. And they are ours at the instant of salvation. 
He concludes by saying, which is Christ in you. We have the indwelling of Jesus Christ. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit for the indwelling of Jesus Christ, who is our confident expectation of glory. So the mystery is unrevealed doctrine that did not exist in the Old Testament. Therefore, if the church is a mystery at the beginning of the New Testament time, if the church is a mystery at the beginning of the New Testament time, then it could not have been in existence in the Old Testament. That is a clear argument for the distinction between Israel and the church. Another passage to look at is in Ephesians 3, 1 through 12. We won't have time to go through all of that, but just in summary, in that passage there is the concept of a body in which Jews and Gentiles are united as one. And that is declared to be a mystery. In Ephesians 3, 1 through 12, we have the introduction of the concept of a body in which there is no longer a barrier between Jew and Gentile. They are united, and that is declared to be part of the mystery doctrine. In the Old Testament, there was a tremendous distinction between Jew and Gentile. Gentile could not enter into the inner part of the temple or the tabernacle. They did not have the same blessings. The only way that a Gentile had access to the same blessings that a Jew did under the Mosaic Covenant was if he proselytized and became a Jew and entered in, as Ruth did, as uh, Rahab uh, the prostitute did, and as other Gentiles did in the Old Testament. Second facet of this mystery doctrine is that the Messiah indwells every believer. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 25 to 27. Colossians 2, 10 through 19. Colossians 3, 4 and verse 11. Once again, that's Colossians 1, 25 to 27. Colossians 2, 10 through 19. And Colossians chapter 3, verses 4 and 11. Third factor is that the church is the bride of Christ. That's unrevealed. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the wife of Yahweh, and that was no mystery. That's not a mystery. So how can it be that the, the say that the church is the bride of Christ is a mystery if the church is Israel according to covenant theology, if the church is Israel, and it was clearly revealed in the Old Testament that Israel was the wife of Yahweh, and then you come to the New Testament, it says it's a mystery that the church is the bride of Christ. The church cannot be Israel. does not follow. And then fourth, the rapture of the church is said to be part of this mystery doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15 50 through 58. The rapture of the church is a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Now, this is an important passage to understand. It talks about the fact that we will be transformed in a twinkling of an eye and that immortality will put on immortality and corruption will put on incorruption. Why can't that be the second coming? Some people would say, well, that's talking about what happens. Jesus Christ is going to come back and... The dead in Christ will be resurrected, and those who are alive will put on, uh, get a resurrected body, and there's not this, this distinction between the rapture and the second coming. It's simple. This is declared to be a mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The second coming was, and resurrection were not mystery doctrines to the Old Testament. You study the Old Testament, you understand the concept of physical bodily resurrection. You understand the concept that Jesus or the Messiah is going to come and set up a kingdom. But there's no mention of what happens in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says, gives us the mechanics of the rapture, and if that is not revealed in the Old Testament, then it can't be talking about the second coming of Christ. If it's a second coming, it's not a mystery. Since it is a mystery, it must be something different. So since the church did not exist in the Old Testament, was a mystery in the Old Testament, then these other mystery concepts, the body of Christ, the indwelling of Messiah, 
the church is the bride of Christ, and the rapture must mean that the church did not exist in the Old Testament. And if the church did not exist in the Old Testament, then there is a clear distinction between Israel and the church. They're not the same people. They they are different people. They have different priorities. God has a different plan, and they have a different destiny. Now, all of this is part of point three, which is states that the church is said to be a mystery. Point number four, the distinctive benefits given to church-age believers sets them apart as unique, that they do not have the same spiritual life as anyone else in any other dispensation. Abraham didn't have these. Elijah didn't have these. Daniel didn't have these. Moses didn't have these. No believer in the Old Testament possessed any of these characteristics. So once again, it shows that church-age believers are distinct and set apart from believers in other dispensations. Well, what are these benefits? First of all, union with Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Second, Jesus Christ indwells every believer, John 14.20 and Colossians 1.27. Jesus Christ indwells every believer, John 14.20 and Colossians 1.27. Third, we have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3.16. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and we must maintain a distinction between three different ministries of the Holy Spirit. Baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the filling by means of the Holy Spirit are three distinct doctrines. They are not related. I mean, they are related, but they are not synonymous. This has caused much confusion in the church age and in many many churches because they've confused those two, those three as being identical. We have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3, 16. He indwells every believer permanently. We cannot lose the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, they were endued with the Holy Spirit, which was a special uh, operation of the Holy Spirit where he gave certain believers, usually believers related to leadership in the nation Israel, power, wisdom, or specific ability to perform a leadership function, whatever it was, if they were a king and leading the nation as a king, if they were a prophet in revelation, if they were a judge in military victory, if they were a craftsman in the skills of their particular craft, goldsmith, silversmith, carpenter, whatever it might be. But that was all it was for. It was not related to their spiritual life. Fourth, in the church age, every believer is a priest, according to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Every believer is a priest. We have the universal priesthood of the believer, and as such, we have direct access to God, and we do not go through anyone else. Just a little note, because of something that happened this last week, I was informed by a piece of email that there was an announcement that one of the large uh, Southern Baptist churches in Houston just uh, voted by a large majority of about 97% to 3% to secede from the Southern Baptist Convention because um, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted a new uh, Baptist faith and message last summer, which is their doctrinal statement. And in that doctrinal statement, they affirm that women cannot serve as pastors. And for that, they ought to be applauded. But the idiocy that's going on among Southern Baptists in this country is that they fail to properly understand the role of a priest. You, I did my internship in seminary at a moderate Southern Baptist uh, church. And I was constantly getting in discussions with people who were saying, well, as part of the priesthood, every priest can interpret the Scripture any way they want to. That's insane. The role of priest in the Old Testament was not an interpreter of God's word. That was the role of the prophet. 
not the role of a priest. A priest is a go-between taking man into the presence of God. A priest is not someone who brings the word of God into the presence of the people. So it just shows if you don't understand priesthood, you're just going to get off into all kinds of subjectivity. And all that is, you come along and you say, a priest can interpret the Bible any way they want to. You're saying, well, the Bible can mean anything it wants to to anybody, and it's pure subjectivity. And that's one reason that denomination is in the mess it's in today, is because at, at the very core of so much of their theology is this kind of uh, quasi-mystical subjectivism and a failure to understand the function of a priest. Priesthood has to do with things like witnessing, has to do with giving, has to do with, with uh, prayer and our prayer life, and that we have direct access to God. It does not have to do with the interpretation of Scripture. Fifth, we have a completed canon of Scripture. Never before in human history have believers had a completed and therefore sufficient revelation of God. And yet we have the completed canon of Scripture so that we can face any and every circumstance without uh, trying to figure out what it is that God wants. We can go straight to His Word and we have everything we need. Sixth, for the first time in human history, we are commanded to live a supernatural way of life. Christian life is a supernatural way of life based on... called the filling of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. And that was never true of Old Testament saints. All they had was a faith rest drill. But we are to live on the basis of the Holy Spirit. Anything that an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. Therefore, the spiritual life is not the same as being moral. Anybody can be moral. There are a lot of moral unbelievers. But morality is not the spiritual life. It goes beyond morality. It is based upon a system of virtue developed by dependence on God the Holy Spirit moment by moment. Seventh, for the first time in history, every believer in Jesus Christ is an ambassador representing Jesus Christ on earth. This deals with the doctrine of our citizenship. Our citizenship is not here, it is in heaven. We'll see that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, which is our ultimate destiny. We are simply here on a temporary assignment to represent uh, the plan of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a responsibility for every single believer. So these are the distinctive benefits and blessings for church-age believers that are not true of any believer at any other time in human history. Fifth. Fifth point in understanding the uh, distinctives of the church age is that uh, the church has a distinct time period in history. It covers a distinct time period in history. The first time the word ecclesia, meaning church, is used in the Bible is in Matthew 16:18, when Jesus said to Peter, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build future tents. I will build my church. This is something that at that time was seen to be future, not present or past. Therefore, he wasn't, he had not built his church. He had not started to build his church. He was not building his church. He would be building it future tense. So there was no church in existence in Matthew 16, 18. It was yet future. Before the church could exist, there were certain prerequisites. Certain things had to take place. First of all, the death of Christ had to take place. The Messiah of Israel had to die as a substitute for our sins. It's interesting that in Matthew 16, 18, which we just looked at, which is the first mention of the church, the first mention of Christ's death comes three verses later in Matthew 16, 21. So Christ had to die before the church could come into existence. Secondly, the, Christ had to be resurrected. He had to be raised from the dead before he could establish his body. He had to also ascend. That's point number three. He had to ascend to heaven 
before he could establish his body. This is found in Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. He had to be raised from the dead before he could establish his body. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. And he had to ascend before he could form a new body. Now, what makes that body a functioning entity is spiritual gifts. We're all given certain spiritual talents. Now, there's a difference between a spiritual gift and a physical talent. Anything that somebody uh, can do in the natural realm, such as a physical talent for singing or playing the piano or uh, any other natural talents, working with your hands, working with your mind, whatever it might be, that's not a spiritual gift. You can have that many times as an unbeliever, and when you become a believer, you still have the ability to play the piano beautifully. It's not a spiritual gift. Spiritual gift is a sovereignly bestowed ability given by God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. And I don't recall reading piano playing or cabinet working or... uh, singing anywhere in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, or Romans chapter 12. Those may be ways in which a spiritual gift might be manifested, but that's not the spiritual gift. Now, Ephesians 4, 7 and following tells us something about spiritual gifts. To each one of us, that is to each one of us as believers, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is referring to a doctrine we haven't studied much, but it's referring to the fact that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, his body went into the grave, and Jesus Christ descended in his human spirit and soul, descended into Hades. Now, Hades at that time was composed of two compartments. It was composed of a place called Torments, which is where the Old Testament unbelievers went, until the final judgment, and it's composed of a place called paradise, which is where Old Testament believers went. They did not go directly to heaven. They were not absent from the body face to face with the Lord because the sin penalty had not been paid for yet. So they're in sort of a holding place called paradise. Now are Abraham's bosom. So Jesus descended after his victory on the cross to announce the completion of the victory. There were also demons who are confined uh, in Hades, And he is announcing their condemnation as well as his victory over death. And then he led captive a host of captives. That refers to Old Testament saints and their uh, interim body state. They are taken to heaven. And then the last statement, he gave gifts to men. That refers to the fact that though the Holy Spirit bestows uh, spiritual gifts, it ultimately is under the authority of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 explains what I just taught. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now that's a parenthetical. And then we come back to verse 11, which outlines these four gifts related to the church. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Those were temporary foundational gifts and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the point here is simple, and that is that before spiritual gifts could be given, Christ had to ascend. Before the body could become functional with spiritual gifts, Christ had to ascend. So, the first three prerequisites for the formation of the church are the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Ephesians 2, 11 through 14, it mentions the fact that this new body is composed of of two peoples, Jew and Gentile, and there is no longer a distinction. Verse 11 reads, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that would refer to Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time, at that time refers to the Old Testament period under the Mosaic Law. At that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That's the place of blessing. 
and strangers to the covenants of promise. Because Romans chapter 16 says that the promises were given to Israel. The covenants were given to Israel. Having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That refers to his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So that now there are, there is one body. There is no longer distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's the point of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. There's no longer Jew or Greek, uh, bond or slave, male or female, because we are all one in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to go home and look in the mirror and say, I'm not a man or I'm not a woman anymore. It means that those socioeconomic distinctions, those ethnic distinctions that were present under the Mosaic law, that determined whether or not you were in a place of blessing and whether or not you could go into the presence of God, are no longer issues for the spiritual life. If you were a female in the Old Testament, you were limited in your access to God, in your participation in the ritual, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. You could not be a priest. You could not um, uh, offer sacrifice. You were therefore for limited. If you were a slave, you were also limited. If you were a Gentile, you were limited. But now in the church age, these ethnic and socioeconomic factors and, and uh, sexual factors are no longer uh, have a relationship to spiritual life. It doesn't mean that there still aren't role distinctions. I mean, Paul did not tell Philemon when he sent the slave Onesimus back that he's not a slave anymore because there's no longer bond uh, nor, nor free in the body of Christ. So therefore, he's really free, and you're just suffering under an illusion, thinking that he's still your slave. No, he said he's still your slave, but for my benefit, please free him. Now, either Paul is the biggest dolt and idiot in human history who can't maintain the, the smallest level of consistency, or he means something different from all these feminists and uh, covenant theologians who come along and can't properly interpret the Scripture. And it is just amazing to me how they can, they can distort the Scripture just to fit their own social agenda. See, the point in being a Christian is not that we impose our political or our social agenda on Scripture. We all have certain political opinions and all have certain opinions about social things. But those opinions need to be shaped by the Word of God and not by whatever our parents taught us or whatever we learned from our favorite professor of political science or our favorite civics teacher in high school or whatever the idiot neighbor tells us. Our opinions about politics, economics, and social problems and social solutions should be formed by the Word of God. That's part of sanctification. And one of the sad things is today, the only thing that seems like conservatives ever address socially is the abortion issue. Well, if you address everything else, then that isn't an issue. But because they are ignorant, because pastors don't want to learn anything and they don't want to talk about economics... They don't want to talk about politics. They don't want to dig into the political theory in Judges and in Samuel. They end up um, teaching an Americanism that identifies uh, the American political system with Christianity, and that's absurd. This nation is not a Christian nation. Never has been, never will be. It was never a theocracy. A nation can't be Christian. It doesn't have a soul. You know, it was clearly influenced by Judeo-Christian principles when it was founded. That was the dominant worldview that affected everything. Without it, it never would have happened. But there were also other factors. There were Enlightenment factors from, from uh, different uh, Enlightenment thinkers such as Locke and Montesquieu and to a very small degree Rousseau and some other French thinkers. But, for the, but it was not exclusively founded by men who took out the Bible and then developed a political theory based on the Bible. They were impacted by that. It certainly was a major influence, but that wasn't the sole influence. So it's just, it, it's, it reflects historical ignorance and biblical illiteracy to say any nation is a Christian nation because there's just no such thing. 
So the barrier of the dividing wall is broken down in the body of Christ, and there's no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That is the third distinction. It's a new body where all are one in Christ. Fourth, the central ministry of the Holy Spirit in relationship to the church is expressed in terms of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is seen in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. It was future in Acts 1.5, and it was past by Acts 11.15-16, which tells us that it happened initially on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Okay, finally, the church is a distinct people distinct entity and a people that are distinct from Israel. Distinct entity and people from Israel, Israel with distinct, little spelling problem there, with distinct privileges, positions, purposes, and destinies. Now, covenant theology and replacement theologians try to make the statement that Israel and the church are terms that are used interchangeably in the Bible. But the term Israel is used 73 times in the New Testament, and not one single time is it used to describe the church. When you look at all these passages, you see that Israel is always kept distinct from the church. In Acts, this is clear, both are mentioned as existing side by side. Israel is still in existence as a political entity, yet neither is referred to as the other. The terms are not interchangeable or synonymous. Now, the term Israel is used in two senses in the New Testament. The first sense is a reference to ethnic Israel, physical, bodily, ethnic Israel, those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then secondly, it is used to refer to spiritual Israel, that is the remnant, those Jews who were believers, either Old Testament saints or uh, New Testament believers, spiritual Israel. So the the New Testament makes certain distinctions, but Israel is never confused with the church. Now, there's a couple of passages that people always go to, and I just want to hit them real quick before I finish. The Israel of God is mentioned in Galatians 6.16. What does that mean, the Israel of God? Galatians 6.16 reads, And those who will walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So you have two different groups mentioned at the end of verse 16, them and the Israel of God. Now, what was the problem in Galatians? We spent about a year and a half going through Galatians. The problem was a bunch of Judaizers who came along after Paul evangelized the Galatian believers. And they trusted in faith alone and Christ alone is the key to salvation. And then these Judaizers came along and said, well, that's not enough to be saved. You also have to enter into the law. And to do so, you have to be circumcised and you have to be proselytes to Judaism or you really won't be in the place of blessing. Now, some of those people were true believers. They are Jewish believers in the church age. And, but they have, uh, they violated the rule that Paul lays out in Galatians, which is grace. So that's what he means. He says, those will walk by this rule. He's been correcting them, all the doctrinal errors that the Galatian believers had picked up. And he says, now those who are going to correct themselves and walk by this rule, peace and mercy to them. And also upon the Israel of God, that is Jewish believers who are in the church. That's what that refers to. It is not a term. He is not talking, using that as a synonym for the church. Now, another phrase that is used in Galatians, that is termed the seed of Abraham, is used by some to say the seed of Abraham is a term that refers to church-age believers with the seed of Abraham. And their, their basic point is that the seed of Abraham equals Israel. So their contention is that the seed of Abraham, 
since church-age believers are of the seed of Abraham, because we are children of Abraham by, by faith, because we express faith just as Abraham did, that the term seed of Abraham equals Israel. But that's not true. You are not a Jew because you are of the physical seed of Abraham. If that were true, there would not be a conflict between Jews and Arabs. Because almost every Arab, there are some groups that are distinct and do not have an Abrahamic lineage, but almost every Arab tribe, Midianites, Moabites, um, many of the Arab tribes down in Arabia, all come from either the sons of Keturah, who was Abraham's second wife, or their descendants of Ishmael, who is his son by way of Hagar the Egyptian, or their descendants of Esau, who is his grandson. Seed of Abraham does not equal Israel. To be a Jew, you had to be the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you could find a place in the New Testament where seed of Jacob was used to refer to the church, then you might have a case. But that doesn't happen. See, to be an ethnic Jew, you have to be from the seed of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the seed of Abraham. So, seed of Abraham does not equal Israel. So, church-age believers and Gentiles are of the seed of Abraham because we follow him by expressing faith alone in Christ alone. Next time we'll wrap up by looking at the unique spiritual life then for the church-age believer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your, your word tonight and understand these fantastic privileges and the, the unique things that you have done for us in making us a part of your body and the church. We pray that we might understand that doctrine is to be our highest priority, that we may renovate our thinking to look at life the way you look at life, to have the values, the priorities that you have expressed in Scripture, that we might glorify you in the angelic conflict as, you, as your manifold wisdom is displayed in our lives. We pray that we would be willing to accept this challenge. In Christ's name, amen.